Bridget Lafont is Emeritus Professor at the European University Institute in Florence and President of the European Policy Centre in Brussels. She was previously Director of the Robert Schuman Centre and prior to that Professor of European Politics at the School of Politics and International Relations, University College Dublin, where she was also Vice President and Principal of the College of Human Sciences. Bridget has written extensively on European integration. She has won many academic prizes and been awarded multiple distinctions for her contribution to the study of the EU and was also included in Politico's list of women who shape Europe. Bridget's recent book, The EU's Response to Brexit, United and Effective, is co-authored with Stefan Teller and published by Palgrave Macmillan. The book is the first detailed analysis of how the EU responded to Brexit. It draws on in-depth interviews with key institutional players in Brussels and in several member states and recounts how the EU reacted to Brexit and how it sought to protect the polity. Welcome to Bridget. Very quickly, by the following Friday, a strong EU problem frame was in place. So speed. And that was because they had prepared, both in the Council and in the Commission, at the very senior levels, the EU's response to remain, but also the EU's response to leave. For It was a form of collaborative governance of Brexit coming from the fact that it was this uh, polity challenge and that overwhelming desire to ensure that Brexit did not undermine the EU or lead to any disintegrative dynamics. It is extraordinary that what was and could have been very easily interpreted by the other member states as a local issue became a really important part of the negotiations but that the unity around Ireland, which may have led to no deal, was so strong. So Bridget, thanks very much uh, for joining us today. Can we just start with a question that we ask all of our guests? What led you to write the book and what are the main messages you intended to communicate? So firstly, what led me to write the book, and I co-authored it with Stefan Teller, but uh, the idea came, it was mine. I was asked to do the JCMS uh, annual review lecture, and I did it on, um, it was called How the EU 27 Came to Be. And I understood when I was doing that one-off lecture, which became an article, that there was a lot more here. Secondly, I'm Irish, and of course, of the remaining member states, uh, Ireland was most affected uh, by the consequences and impact of Brexit than any other members, any other member state, bar none. And so, for me, there was a compelling academic interest, but also a compelling public policy interest, um, and it was something I was going to watch very carefully and and and. Anyway, I was going to look at it. So I thought then uh, there's a wonderful book here. The book focuses on the EU side of Brexit. So it's how the EU responded. The first important message is that uh, Brexit was a polity crisis for the EU and not just an economic one. Uh, so the polity, it was a polity attack to use Frank Schimmelfenning's uh, language. 
Secondly, it came after a series of crises that the EU had handled very badly. And thirdly, the immediate response to Brexit was that this uh, would be disintegrative within the EU. So the key message of the book is that the EU responded to Brexit effectively and in a very united manner. Uh, and that if one looks at the totality of crises that the EU has coped with in the long decade from 09 onwards, uh, that Brexit was a hinge crisis uh, and that during the Brexit, in response to Brexit, that the EU really showed a robust capacity to handle the departure of a large and significant member state. And if it can do that, then in a way, uh, who are the essential member states if you in in that sense? So there was lots and lots of reasons why we did why we did the book, but those were the primary ones. Great, thanks very much. And just to say to the listeners that you can read um, Bridget's um, le um, lecture and article from the lecture in General Common Market Studies 2019. Cleo? Yes, well, thanks a lot, uh, Bridget. It's a pleasure to talk to you. <laughs> so the, you've already mentioned um, the core argument of the book. I, I'll just go, we'll go into it a bit if, if you don't mind. So the core argument, uh, as I understand it, is that the EU's Brexit response was united and affected because the union forged a process that not only accommodated the various interests of different actors in a coherent set of objectives, but also generated broad political ownership mm -hmm. uh, and mobilized dispersed institutional resources. So I wonder if you could describe or, or tell us a little about the kind of process um, that was put in place, how it was forged and negotiated, and then perhaps these institutional resources you refer to. So uh, the, the first thing I would say is that almost in an ecological way, the EU responded in a certain way. So it was reflex. It was a reflex that was held by the core political actors in the EU, predominantly in the institutions, but not only. And of course, what does the EU do when confronted with something that it would prefer had not happened? And right through this, the EU regards Brexit as a lose-lose anyway. But how does the EU respond? It firstly looks to Article 50. So a treaty provision, a constitutional provision that a member state can leave. And then it looks to the content of that article, which broadly specifies some process elements. But then the EU adds process, adds further process to that. So the first was no negotiation without notification. NNWN was absolutely critical in the early part of the uh, of, of the negotiations or of the event, because the negotiations came later. And what that did was it gave the EU protection as it worked out what Brexit would mean for it and how it should handle it. So the no negotiation without notification uh, came from the council uh, and was an attempt to make sure that the British didn't divide and conquer, didn't enter pre-negotiation, didn't, didn't soften up the EU and decide, oh, we might get more here. Or in other words, the EU was not enticed by the UK into 
negotiating Brexit on its terms. Rather, the EU was going to negotiate Brexit on EU terms. And that's absolutely uh, that's absolutely critical. And that reinforces my argument that of the polity nature that they were protecting, that there was a sense in which the system had to be protected. But then the EU added further process elements all along the way uh, in terms of the negotiations. So, for example, uh, in the in the guidelines, in, in the EU's mandate, there was provision made for there needed to be sufficient progress before moving to discuss the future. In other words, divorce first, an overlap between divorce and the future, but only on the EU's terms. So the EU also used time very effectively because Article 50 had time. Yeah, fantastic. Very clear there. And yeah, going back to uh, the point you make about uh, the beginning and, and, and carving out some time, this uh, no negotiation uh, without notification. Uh, in the book, you talk about how framing played uh, a key part in your your account of, of the, the negotiations or the EU's response. Could you explain what you mean by the term and, and why it was so important, especially so in the first in, in our analytical framework, framing is the first element. And the reason for that is that the EU needed to understand itself what Brexit would mean to it and how it would handle it. So in other words, framing is a necessary process. Collective framing is a necessary process to allow the EU understand what the problem was or the challenge was. And very quickly, and also framing, I should say, is not just the immediate framing, but framing then carries on in terms of the cognitive processes later for the negotiations. And what was remarkable, in my view, absolutely remarkable, was the speed of the framing. On the 24th of June, on the Friday, the EU, after the result had come out overnight, the EU, firstly, Donald Tusk made a statement and then the presidents of the four elements of the EU institutional landscape, including Mark Rutte, because the Netherlands had the presidency of the council. They came out with very important statements. But then on Sunday, the Sherpas of the heads of government met and they prepared an informal European Council, ALA 27, which was held the day after the full European Council, which was at 28. So in my view, the framing included certain elements. Unity, we will be united. The indivisibility of the four freedoms. In other words, we will protect the single market. And the idea of a balance of rights and obligations and the importance of membership. And also in that framing, there was a determination that the EU would also have a positive agenda unrelated to Brexit, which was Bratislava, the, the, the decision to have a European Council of the 27 in September. Of, so in other words, very quickly, by the following Friday, the, a strong EU problem frame was in place, 
And the EU also then began to sketch out some of the action frames that went with that. In other words, the no negotiation without notification, et cetera, et cetera. So speed. And that was because they had prepared, both in the council and in the commission, at the very senior levels, they had to they had prepared for the EU's response to remain, but also the EU's response to leave. But it was the robustness of the EU's response to leave. And of course, unity at this stage was a rhetorical commitment. So the action challenge was to transform that into a practice norm. And of course, that happened. It became a practice norm. But I would say there was an extraordinarily strong framing. I also, if you look at negotiating mandate in March 17, it's one of the clearest EU documents, in my view, that has ever been crafted. It is a beautifully crafted document in terms of setting out these are the principles and following from these principles, this is these are the interests and this is how we are going to to handle this. So I would say clarity of purpose was very strong, despite the fact that Brexit was not something that the EU wanted and, of course, carried enormous risks for it. I'm struck by the emphasis that you've um, put on the European Council so far, um, not, not because it's not something I, I don't know, but, but it's because a lot of the sort of external perception, particularly in the UK, was that this is a process dominated by the Commission and Michelle Barnier was the face of it. And I, you know, I, I wondered, I wondered what you would, you know, what you would say against that that kind of perspective. So what what was remarkable was that the European Council actually devoted very little time thereafter to Brexit. It passed. It nodded the on the uh, guidelines, it reviewed, it didn't seriously address Brexit again, but that's because it was quite content with what was happening. And in a way, the hands-on European Council involvement came with the need for extensions. If you, you, if you remember those long uh, European Council meetings and there was contestation around extensions, but the heads of government, in my view, were always the command ship, <laughs> to use the phrase that you find in the literature. But I would say that there was a co-creation of the response between the different institutional elements. And I do think that Juncker was inspired in his choice of Barnier, because it was a, a political heavyweight someone who would have credibility in the European Parliament, in the Council, European Council. But we shouldn't underestimate the extent to which Barnier and the task force worked with the member states. So I use the concept of co-creation, even though, for example, the guidelines, the negotiating mandate was a council prerogative, there were commission officials sitting in on every single meeting. So it was a co-creation. It was a form of collaborative governance of Brexit, coming from the fact that it was this uh, polity challenge and that overwhelming desire to 
ensured that Brexit did not undermine the EU or lead to any disintegrative dynamics. And again, one of the external perceptions over the, the summer and the autumn was that there's somehow sort of battle going on across the route à la Loire between the two institutions for leadership. And so, you know, what you're suggesting runs very much counter to that to that view. Now, of course, there were sensitivities in that when the council very quickly within one week set up a Brexit task force that then became the Article 50 committee, that did uh, there was a response in the commission and a concern that the council would want to be the negotiator. But I don't think that was ever a realistic proposition. But it is also true that the council had a presence in the negotiations, even though the commission was the lead negotiator. The council at any stage could send someone to any meeting and did so I think I go back to there was a, an enormous effort made by the institutions to overcome any idea of turf war. It was, you know, in other words, the classical external federator dynamic. It's the UK is our issue, not each other. The book argues that the Brexit process can't be explained in terms of the traditional debate between intergovernmentalism and, and supranationalism. I, I wondered if you thought those theories are now redundant. No, uh, I don't think the theories are redundant, but I have always uh, resisted the sort of binary arguments between the EU as supranational or the EU as intergovernmental. I have never found that a useful or interesting way of analysing the dynamic of European integration. And let's begin with liberal intergovernmentalism. So the argument here would be that national preferences would emerge from the capitals to Brussels and that economic actors would dominate. And that's simply not what happened. In other words, there was, right through this process, there was a strong, what I would call, top-down management of the issue. Uh, and that was key actors in all of the institutions, but particularly in the Commission and Council, making sure that they kept Corpor involved, that the Article 50 committee that was going back to the capitals all of the time. So in other words, I don't think an intergovernmental explanation uh, that it really helps us a lot with how the process happened in, 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 in real time. On supranational, again, uh, it wasn't that the member states were being dominated by the so-called supranational institutions, rather that there was a collective working through of the in, what interests the EU would, would put on the table for phase one, and then what were the red lines for, for the negotiations. And what was very important in this was in autumn 16, the commission basically did an analysis of the acquis. And from that, that analysis, which was done in with the DGs, because that's where the expertise was, the, the system began to have an understanding of what were the big issues and challenges across the entire range of the acquis for, for Brexit. And that led them then to have seminars. And at those seminars in November, December 16, and there may have been one in January 17, they would have, for example, a seminar on citizenship. 
where they would interrogate all of the issues in minute detail. And interestingly, all of those seminars were also um, attended by MEPs from the Brexit uh, committees of the parliament. So it was parliament, commission and council. And this was almost, it was educational. It was testing what the issues were. It was making sure that the EU was in command of the dossiers in a very technical, you know, not just political, but also technical sense. Thank you, Bridget. I mean, I think you've gone you've gone into to, to already quite a lot of information about how this this unity was uh, first created and then maintained. You, you've mentioned the existential threat to the EU, uh, and the, the book does does very well at reminding the readers uh, that this was was the the core problem or the core way of of, of understanding Brexit uh, for the European institutions and the member states. And that is it is it fair to say that one of the key concerns of the EU was to send this, a clear message to member states that you use the EU as a scapegoat at your own peril. If you see what I mean, I think that the EU was collectively sending the message both to itself and to the UK that the European Union would remain the dominant institution for managing complex interdependence in Europe, and that it had that membership had to that a membership matters, and that membership had to matter, and that there were real benefits to membership. And of course there was, but in my view, that wasn't the the reminder that you use the EU as a scapegoat at your pearl. I think, in fact, that was almost the lesson from the denouement of Brexit, that it turns out that the complex interdependence is extremely difficult to disentangle and that there are real costs and trade-offs. So I think it was more a reminder of the costs and trade-offs of exiting. And just like membership had to matter, the decision to leave also had had to have consequences. In other words, if the UK could leave and end up in a world where it was very satisfied, both in terms of political economy and uh, voice, then that would undermine the EU in a very real sense. But I think what also surprised us in our interviewing was that the, the those involved, for example, in the task forces, how committed they were to something called the dynamic of European integration or the European Union. I That, that surprised me. There was a real commitment to the importance of what they were doing. You know, we we would use the term in relation to a state, the state some service. They really felt they were doing the EU some service. There was a very high level of motivation among the officials involved, but also Barnier, whom, of course, you've interviewed. Yeah, I'll come back. You've mentioned Barnier already, and that that was what uh, I wanted to ask you next, uh, ask you about next. So uh, the agency of institutional actors is central to to the book, and and you argue for taking it seriously, very compellingly. I did wonder if you could go back perhaps on, on the role of some of the individuals, how key were the personalities and roles of the EU's chief negotiator, for instance, but also Donald Tusk. 
the president of the European Councils, and perhaps including figures that typically remain behind the scenes? So I I would say um, Barnier was not the manager of the technical negotiations. Sabine Veyand would have been the person who really interrogated with Ollie Robbins the withdrawal agreement, the first iteration of the withdrawal agreement. But what Barnier's job was, uh, was to send the political messages to Juncker and Selmayr, to the European Council, all of the committees of the Council, and keep the European Parliament on board, and also go round the capitals. He visited all of the capitals, and in many cases, more than once. So Barnier's role was that of the political glue. He was the field marshal. <laughs> but of course, Barnier um, had a very significant team, uh, and uh, he drew that team from some of the brightest and the best within the commission. And of course, their competence, uh, particularly, say, the deputies, really mattered. But then someone like Didier always in the council, his job was twofold. He chaired the Article 50 committee. So his job was to make sure that the commission was doing its job in a way that the council, that the member states would live with. But equally, he was a buffer for the commission in the negotiations vis-a-vis -vis the member states. He, and he was a lawyer, he had worked in the Van Rompuy cabinet, so he was politically very astute. He could work up and down the council system. And then of course, both these institutions had to keep the parliament on board. Uh, and the parliament, really people like Verhofstadt led in the parliament's response. Uh, and the parliament was particularly interested in citizenship. And there's no, there was no European parliament resolution that was not looked at first by the commission and the task force and the council. So again, there was this toing, constant toing and froing to make sure that the unity stuck that it became a, pra uh, a practice norm. Of course, there were times in the negotiations, for example, when before the first withdrawal agreement, when they went into the tunnel, uh, there was some anxiety among the member states. What are they doing? We haven't been told everything. But again, they, the commission task negotiating uh, teams at this stage had built up sufficient credibility to be, in a sense, released uh, to do this. And uh, I would say of the, particularly the withdrawal negotiations, uh, by far the most difficult issue for the system, both on the EU side, but also the British side, was the border on the island of Ireland, which remained highly sensitive and very political all along the way. I mean, by by Florence in, in September 17, Britain had conceded on the financial one, citizenship broadly they reached agreement. Northern Ireland was extremely difficult, as we know, through the withdrawal agreement, through the TCA and in the implementation phase. 
You're an expert on Ireland and Brexit, and we've written quite extensively about that, including a really clean and excellent chapter, I think, in the Handbook of the EU and Brexit that's uh, edited by Christopher Lord and John Eric Fossum, and I'll just say for um, if out there in public, I suppose. I also have a chapter in that book on, on, on the EU. But you chose not to say anything about Ireland in, um, in this book. So this wasn't a book about Ireland. And in a way, I'd written about Ireland and Brexit. I could write a, an entire book on Ireland and Brexit, but I won't because I don't I don't want to. Um, and we, I didn't want the book to be overshadowed by the Irish issue. So that's why it has its place in the book. It has its rightful place in the book, but it isn't the dominant story because I was interested in the EU collectively and its response. But on Ireland and Brexit, it is extraordinary that what was and could have been very easily interpreted by the other member states as a local issue, a sub-state issue even, became a really important part of the negotiations and not just an important part of the negotiations, but that the unity around Ireland, which may have led to no deal, was so strong. And of course, there was now and again, and Merkel at one European Council asked, what happens if there's no deal? What happens at the border? What will Ireland do, in a sense, to protect the, the internal market? And that was the question that Ireland didn't want to ask. And all Ireland would ever say is, we will fulfil our, our obligations as a member state. But it would have been extremely difficult for Ireland to handle that. And it's also important that there's a tendency to think that protection of the single market didn't matter to Ireland. It did. Its economy, it's an export-driven economy. It could not afford a leaky border on the island of Ireland with products coming in and going in uh, onto the European market. It's also a major exporter of food products. So again, any accident would be very problematic. But I do think that the Irish state, both at political and administrative level, did an extremely good job in making the Irish question a European question. But that was also contested in, in the administration in Dublin. Phil Hogan, Ireland's commissioner, in January 17, wrote a very important opinion piece in the Irish Times, which was signalling to Dublin, you, uh, you, you can only play the European card on this. You can't do bilaterals with the UK. And of course, that's uh, that's not what um, that's exactly what happened. The Irish issue was Europeanized. Great, thanks very much. In the concluding chapter of your book, you you engage with the argument that the EU's approach to the Brexit negotiations showed strategic myopia. This this is a view which you hear voiced a lot in the UK. It must be said, but you also do hear it in the Commission, and you hear it across the road, and and actually in, in some of the perm reps too. So there is a um, a regret, a, a, a lament. You take issue with the view that the EU failed strategically because it conducted the negotiations without ever thinking about what um, kind of relationship it wanted with the UK. But should the EU have had at least one eye on the post Brexit future? It did have an eye on post Brexit future. Uh, it knew exactly what it was doing. And it privileged the coherence and robustness of the of the EU itself over the relationship with the UK. And that's because both for every member state, but also the collective, the EU mattered more to them. It was the primary interest 
and relationship with Britain was important, but secondary to that. So the EU, if you remember Barnier's Escalier, you know, there's EEA, there's Switzerland, there's this, that and the other. There are models. Uh, the Once the United Kingdom decided on a hard Brexit, once it decided that it did not want the jurisdiction of the Court of Justice, that it did not and would not sign up to the four, four freedoms, and it had all sorts of red lines, then in my view, the outcome was predetermined. The EU was not going to cross its red lines to accommodate the red lines of the United Kingdom. And had it, it would have been very problematic internally in the EU. So let's say on free movement of people, if it had allowed for market access for goods and services in a close to status quo, membership status quo, but not on movement of people, then think of the rise of the right in Europe and immigration being a contested issue. That would have had knock-on politicization effects within the EU and in the member states. So that's that that commitment to the integrity of the single market and the so-called indivisibility of the four freedoms came from a concern that if you began to unravel it or them, you didn't know where you would end up and you didn't know what the cost calculus would be for member states. And it was also a neat way of saying membership matters, there are real public goods involved and that you can't have an a la carte approach to, to the single market and that the EU is a legal entity. And for me, the biggest red line that the UK had was the Court of Justice and the legal system. Once, so that ruled out mutual recognition. It, it ruled out so much of the key because mutual recognition between a non-member state and the EU is very different to mutual recognition within the EU that is surrounded by legal process, a legal edifice, and a way in which you can you can you know go right through the different layers of the system. So, in my view, it would have been extraordinary for the UK to have got a deal that allowed it, you know, the good old cherry picking. Um, had it had the UK come, had it itself had any idea what it wanted, that may have. I don't know whether that would have made the world different, but the UK only knew what it didn't want. It never knew what it wanted other than, say, checkers or, and I found checkers that would allow that the EU was never going to let the UK collect uh, collect tariffs for it. I mean, that would be insane. So it's the, in other words, the UK never came to a settled view of what it wanted. At least a there was no political consensus on what the EU, what the UK uh, wanted. And that was partly because I don't think, unlike the EU, the UK framed Brexit as what it wouldn't have, but never what it meant. Uh, and uh, a lot flowed from that. 
Uh, now, the EU was very willing to have in the TCA uh, a chapter on uh, security, and it has on internal security, but not on foreign policy. But the UK didn't want it. So I think the idea that somehow or other it was the EU's job to, in a sense, make life easy for a country that had decided to leave or to accommodate it beyond the EU's red lines, in my view, was was wholly unrealistic and never going to happen. Would the EU ideally prefer a better relationship with the UK? Yes, but that's a different question. Also, in the conclusion, you, you talk about the departure of a wealthy and consolidated liberal democracy as a great loss to the EU. And I just wondered if you'd seen any consequences from the UK not being in the room. Interestingly, I think there has been quite a significant Brexit bonus for the EU in two senses. One, that the RRF could not have been and would not have been agreed with the UK as a member. That's in 2011, if we remember, in December 11, Cameron objected to the EU using treaty the treaties for the stability and growth pact. So that went to, that became a separate uh, treaty. And any British government, in my view, would have pushed the EU to extra treaty on the RRF. It would not have been connected to the MFF. So, and that's been a really important benefit to the EU that breaking of the taboo of common borrowing. And I don't see the circumstances in which that could have happened um, without the uh, with the UK as a member. The second area where I think it has had an important impact has been on opt-outs and sort of a la carte integration. It has made it, the UK was the champion of differentiated membership. That now is much differentiated integration in the existing EU is much less significant because the champion is gone. Uh, And so in a way, for the smaller countries like Denmark and uh, Sweden, non-Euro members, I think it's the EU is probably they've adjusted and adapted because they want to remain members. But would they prefer to have um, would they prefer to have the UK in? I suspect yes. But also, I think that the UK, uh, the EU has also evolved since then. Uh, You have had two further crises, both uh, the pandemic in Ukraine. And again, the EU's collective power is visible in both those crises and they've handled them rather better than, for example, the Eurozone or migration crisis. Brexit is now a fact of of life in the EU. So I think particularly for the UK, the big challenge now is that Brexit is not on the top five agenda items of the EU. The the relations with the UK is not a top agenda item. um, And the EU has a a lot to get on with. And it goes back to the fundamental uh, that despite the fact that the UK was a large and important country, it it turns out it wasn't an indispensable member state. Whereas I think if France or Germany left, that would be different. That would be different. If, for example, Hungary left, then I think there are a lot of member states would be very happy to see an Orban-led Hungary 
not around the table. So it's also that other question of uh, what happens a country when they leave an entity that they were deeply entangled with? And of course, the UK, in a way, hasn't yet arrived at a settled view of what it wants from the relationship. The pillars are there. It's the it's the withdrawal agreement and it's the TCA. Yes, we're, we're, we're constantly um, intrigued by how... Um... The the, the 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 root of the TCS sort of talked up as a possibility of almost sort of full scale renegotiation, and it's not going to happen until probably at the earliest twenty twenty six. Although there could be mm. initial discussions next year or in twenty five, but this the other thing, of course, is that the EU and the book argues this: the EU broadly got what it wanted, and there are member states now heavily invested, for example, in in financial services who gained materially from Brexit and won't want to see a reversal, won't want to see a reversal of that. And if you think about the balance of the the political economy of the relationship, the UK got a very thin deal in services uh, and the EU got a good deal in goods. And if you look at the relationship, goods broadly mattered more to the EU and services mattered more to the UK economy. So, and uh, again, the book looks carefully at another crunch issue in the, at the, in the end game, and that was the level playing field. And by summer, by the summer of the TCA negotiations, uh, when there was the review with Boris Johnson, uh, the EU took seriously Johnson's assertion that there will be no um, court of justice oversight. And so it then decided, well, dynamic alignment is not on. How do we create a system that protects us in terms of level playing field without this? And um, they a very small group of uh, Commission officials from the task force, competition policy, and von der Leyen's cabinet. And it was uh, Stephanie Riso led this. She was von der Leyen's deputy at the time. They constructed the functional equivalent. And of course, what, what's key is uh, the capacity to retaliate very quickly and decisively in terms of you know, nuclear options in there. And again, on fisheries, the nuclear option on fisheries is market access. And of course, British fish is sold on the European market. So the EU, even in areas where it conceded to the UK the principle, it constructed an agreement that, how would I probably put, that it could live with, that it felt gave it the protections that it felt it needed. And as we know, um, you, despite, I mean, how much divergence has there has been in terms of regulation is, is an open question. But so far, the EU hasn't felt that any divergence has undermined the competitiveness of the EU firms. But they keep a very close eye on this. They keep a very close eye.
We've mentioned the, the, the ongoing debate in the UK about this uh, review of the TCA. In the book, there's a, a detailed chapter on the problems around the implementation of the protocol on, on Ireland and Northern Ireland and the very low levels of trust uh, in the UK-EU relationship through 21-22. H- how has the Windsor Framework Agreement uh, restored trust going forward? I think it was very important that there was an agreement on the implementation of the protocol, without which the relationship would have remained extremely difficult and challenging. But the Windsor framework has now got to be implemented. And there are, you know, issues around are our food products coming into Northern Ireland? Are they will they all be stamped properly with not for the EU? And you know, in other words, market surveillance continues to be very important. Provided, I think, the EU, and this really matters for Dublin, of course, that there's no leakage from the island of Ireland into the sen- in, into the single market, then I think that at least the Northern Ireland issue or the issue of the border on the island of Ireland is solved at one level. But of course, it's not solved. It remains within Northern Ireland, extremely contentious for the unionists. But I do think that it was extremely important that they reached agreement. And I think Sunak followed it up pretty quickly with the horizon. With horizon, I think, again, that's very important. I think what's what's good about the relationship now is it's broadly off the front pages. And the, the neuralgic element has has definitely been contained. Whether what happens the relationship in substantive terms from now on is still, in my view, a very open question. Uh, and I wouldn't hazard uh, a prediction. I, I worry sometimes that there is an assumption that a Labour-led government could easily renegotiate the TCA. I just don't think that's accurate. I don't think that's accurate. But could there be other side arrangements, agreements, and also could the texture of the relationship deepen? Absolutely. And I would expect it to. But there, I see no world in which the trade-off for the UK of leaving the EU or the costs will disappear easily. I just don't see it. That really would require an EEA type arrangement. And I can't see London agreeing to an EEA type uh, agreement. I wanted to ask about um, how the EU has changed, but also what lessons can be drawn from the way it managed Brexit. And I mean, there, there are two questions here, really. Um, I wondered if you thought that the, the Barnier method could be applied elsewhere. Yeah, if we, if we think about the Barnier method as being sort of emblematic of the institutional ecology that you um, were describing earlier. But also in your work, you've you've talked about these responsive to Brexit being a, a transformative moment as being a, a, the moment where it sort of realises, mobilises a collective power. And I wondered what you meant by the phrase, what's the evidence you has taken that same kind of approach since Brexit. And do you think we've moved into a new phase or era of European integration as a result? So I I think that Brexit was a hinge crisis. It was a crisis between one EU and the way it handled migration and the Eurozone 
to a more robust and resilient EU that was stress tested by Brexit, but also that that resilience manifested itself again in the pandemic and again in response to the war in Ukraine. Very different challenges requiring very different responses. But even on the institutional ecology, von der Leyen set up a very large uh, task force to handle the pandemic, drawing all of the commissioners together and their services in areas such as the economic impact on the one hand and then the health impact on the other. And she that was driven by her, by her cabinet. So again, that was what I would call institutional adaptation. And again, when it comes to Ukraine, there are internal coordination processes in the commission and structures that are reminiscent, different to, but are examples of what I would call collaborative governance, coordinated collaborative governance. So it's not that the Barnier method, which developed in response to a particular series of challenges, will manifest itself, would manifest itself in exactly the same way in very different uh, crises. But I think that the capacity of the EU including the Commission to respond to crises, has improved. It it certainly has strengthened. Uh, and in a piece that I'm writing at the moment, I think that I would say that the EU is developing what I call in the piece three polity norms. The first is the responsibility to act collectively. So in other words, you can't have a challenge like Ukraine, war in Europe, for all the member states to do their own thing without what they do as individually being in some ways mediated by their membership, by the collective. The second is unity. And when I say that unity, the aspiration to unity is now the norm. It's not that the unity exists in each and every stage or at all times, even within the response to Ukraine. I mean, we just have to look at Orban. But the aspiration to unity, and if you if you look carefully, you tend to get one or two member states having difficulty, but not big cleavages. And the third polity norm that is strengthening is solidarity. And that's not solidarity only in financial terms. For example, in Brexit, it was solidarity with Ireland on its issue. And it's not that solidarity reigns supreme all of the time, but rather that the aspiration to solidarity is very active in the system in terms of how the EU operates now. And calls to solidarity have become very significant in the framing of EU challenges. And that, again, I think is it's weaker than the unity norm, uh, norm, but it's there. If you go on the website, and, uh, on the Commission website and Google Ukraine, the first word that hits you is solidarity with Ukraine. But I think the first one, the collective responsibility to act, to act collectively, the, the responsibility to act collectively, 
the the sense that the EU faced with these very big, big crises has got to try to the extent that it can get its act together and that all of the institutional processes are around are around that, but also the framing. These are, but I haven't finished that paper yet. We look forward to it, Bridget. <laughs> we look forward to it. To wrap up, uh, you've given a number of talks on, on the book, and I just we just wondered whether you'd been surprised by the line of questioning or any of the responses that uh, that have come about. Not, not really. I think a very frequent question which in my view is a very legitimate question, has been, well, was the, yes, the EU was united. Yes, the EU was very effective. But wasn't that because the UK handled this very badly? In other words, the mirror image to the UK. But I'm not sure if the UK had, what it would have needed to have done to change the outcome's significantly, given its red lines. So in my view, the the relationship or the, the two big treaties emerged from a very small landing zone between the red lines of both sides. And I don't see circumstances in which the EU's red lines would have been very different. So you could have had a different outcome, but the UK would have wanted that outcome and would have wanted been prepared politically to take the consequences of the outcome of 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 the choices uh, but as long as the uk negotiated brexit in strongly sovereignist terms then in my view the eu the outcome was pretty inevitable and the eu would have been as careful in its negotiations if for example the uk wanted an EA-type arrangement. It would have watched level playing field. It would have watched the balances of rights and obligations. It would have broadly had the same approach. The outcome could have been different because the UK would have agreed to different things. But there also was in in these negotiations a fundamental and deep-rooted asymmetry, the power of one versus the power of 27. It was just an uneven negotiation. And I think because Britain had been a large and important member state, I don't think its officials or political actors were that attuned to that asymmetry of power. And the other thing I think that they weren't attuned to was the that differentiated integration outside the EU is very different to opt-outs and opt-ins within the EU as a member state. I don't think there was a clarity in at political level in Britain about that. I think there was an assumption that, oh, it's just, you know, as Beth, as the Luxembourg Prime Minister said, opt-out, opt-ins from without. So I think it's a very fair question what impact the fact that the UK was not particularly well prepared, that it knew what it didn't want, but not necessarily what it wanted. I mean, Frost did go in with asks that were to do with um, services, but he, the minute he was told no, 
he didn't fight them. He didn't fight for any of the special deals. Now, on cars, of course, they got the 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 an extension in terms of the um, EU content rules of origin. But I think that also suited the EU. There was a lot of questions on whether or not that was Brexit just a, a one-off case study that you can't draw conclusions about what the EU has become. In, and, but I think it's legitimate to do comparative case, cases across crises. And to look at individual cases where they're really like this one. What was... what. What was interesting to me, and you know, sort of full disclosure, I was sort of interviewing people in the commission at, at the same time from and, and and the other side of it, I must say, and the, the member states from um, from the summer of, of 2016, is that the very reason such a robust process was, was put in place was because in Brussels there was fear and respect for an admiration for the UK system for yeah. what it had been for its for its you know, for its strength for its robustness for its effectiveness and specifically for the PR. I mean, I think that you know you're describing the um, the clarity of those European Council guidelines, um, but but I think that from, you know, from the very start there was an attempt to to be very telegraphic in all communications so that anybody picking up the text could read it. So there was no dependence upon you know government intermediation or mediation of the mechanism of the UK or, or mediation by the by the UK press. So in a way, um, in a way the experiment is done because you know um this was a this was a machinery and process that was set up to um to respond to a particular perception of the UK that the UK wasn't able to sort of you know, if you like live up to reputation is a completely different matter. I also think that there was another element. So there was extraordinary respect for what for the official level engagement of you know for UK administrators, UK civil servants, less for the political class, much less for the political class. There also was a legacy of the Cameron renegotiation. The number of people we interviewed who said that the EU had been too generous and gone too far and Cameron hadn't even defended it was legion. Um, so I do think that was a knock-on. That was a knock-on effect. But the other thing the EU was con very concerned about was that the UK would try and divide and conquer, that the UK would... And I know the Foreign Office did an exercise when it looked at all the member states and analysed, you know, what are what's our niche here? What can we be helpful with here? And th there was the EU was determined that the UK a wouldn't peel off a member state, or that the UK couldn't, in a sense, have a member state arguing on its behalf. And so there was both respect. But there was also a determination that the EU was on a third country track. And that was its definition. It was a third country in the making. It was not a member state. And so I think that it it there was respect. But again, the people we interviewed were very uh, said that they that the UK officials that they interacted with they had a you know very good things to say as i said much less about the political class but i should leave i should leave it at that but also of course for the uk was the challenge that it had no experience of negotiating trade deals 
It had no experience. The EU had done a lot of this stuff. There's, there's a great uh, quote. I mean, I remember listening to Radio 4 and hearing, um, I think it's was Andrew McDougall, who was part of the Canadian Prime Minister's team. And he just said, look, the thing is, well, you're just, you know, as soon as you start negotiating, you're just aware of the dramatic asymmetry. It's a gorilla. You know, it can basically not do what it wants exactly, but it, it's, it, it's clear it's, it's in charge of room. It, it has power. And the only time when the EU senses that there might be other gorillas around are when it uh, negotiates with the US or with Beijing, with China. Otherwise, it feels it is the gorilla in the room. Well, Bridget, on that note, <laughs> thank you very much for, um, My for, pleasure. for discussing your book with us. Thank you. It's been a really thank interesting conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good to talk to you. Books on Brexit is for anyone interested in the negotiations that form the basis of the UK's relations with the EU and for perspectives on the UK and EU after Brexit. Please listen to other episodes for a range of views.